Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. In top news today, on a day that authorities implicated three men in the kidnapping and killing last weekend of a Marion woman, friends and family of Melody Hoffman gathered Thursday for a candlelight vigil to remember the 20-year-old as persistent, confident, and beautiful. Three people were charged Thursday in the murder case, two with the murder and one with conspiracy. Though police did not release a motive, one of those charged admitted to investigators being in an intimate relationship with Hoffman, but at the same time with another woman also. McKinley Luisma, 23, of Hiawatha, was charged earlier this week with first-degree kidnapping and conspiracy to commit a forcible felony in the case. His charges Thursday were upgraded to include first-degree murder. A second man, Dakota Lyle Van Patten, 18, of Cedar Rapids, also was charged with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit a forcible felony. A third man, Logan Kimpton, 18, of Hiawatha, was arrested Thursday on a charge of conspiracy to commit a forcible felony. Court documents show he had lived at the same address as Luisma. Van Patten and Luisma are accused of kidnapping and killing Hoffman, who Luisma told investigators he'd been in, in an intimate relationship with on Saturday night. Video surveillance from before Van Patten and Luisma met Hoffman that night showed all three men at Walmart in southwest Cedar Rapids where they bought gloves and two machetes, according to criminal complaints. Two or three nights before Hoffman's death, Kimpton told three other people that he and the two others had a plan to kill someone. Kimpton admitted to investigators that he had been at Walmart with the two other men Saturday night and bought the machetes and gloves. When an investigator told Kimpton in an interview he chickened out of participating in the murder, he responded, damn right I did, according to complaints. The complaints state data from Hoffman's iPhone and Apple Watch indicated she was picked up by Luisma and Van Patten and was in Luisma's car about 11 p.m. Saturday. She had been at Lynn County's Morgan Creek Park in Cedar Rapids. Luisma admitted he and Van Patten kidnapped Hoffman from the park. Data from Hoffman's watch indicated her heartbeat intensified before it either stopped or the watch was deactivated, according to the complaint. Hoffman was found dead Sunday by Lily Lake, at 220th Trail and 38th Avenue in Amana. A preliminary report from the Iowa State Medical Examiner's Office showed strangulation as the cause of death, but Hoffman's body also had numerous stab and slash wounds. Louisa Luisma admitted to a Division of Criminal Investigation special agent that he was with Hoffman and Van Patten and that he and Van Patten bound Hoffman's wrists with duct tape at Morgan Creek Park, placed her in the trunk of the car, and drove to several different locations in Lynn County until traveling to Iowa County.
Luisma told the agent he had helped rip off Hoffman's clothes before her body was left near the lily pond. He said Hoffman had been beaten and was begging to be let go. Luisma said he had been in a relationship with Hoffman and was still seeing her, but also was in a relationship with another woman, according to court documents. Investigators with a warrant searched Luisma's car and found Hoffman's phone case, a white Apple Watch band with blood on it, a bungee cord, a towing rope, gloves, and clothing matching the clothing she had been wearing at Morgan Creek Park. They also searched Van Patten's home and found Hoffman's glasses and part of a towing rope they believe was used to kill her, according to the complaints. A witness whose name was not released told investigators that after Hoffman's body was left at Lily Lake, Van Patten had a machete and told the witness he had killed someone. When asked who he had killed, Van Patten said, Melody. Van Patten admitted to investigators he was with Luisma on Saturday night and said they stopped at a convenience store to buy cigars. This was confirmed by surveillance video showing them at a quick star in Cedar Rapids after Hoffman's body had been left at the lake. Investigators believe that key elements of the forcible felony offense of kidnapping in the first degree and murder in the first degree, if not all the elements, occurred in Lynn County prior to Luisma and Van Patten traveling to Iowa County where Hoffman's body was discovered. The slaying is being investigated by the Marion Police Department, the DCI, the Lynn County Sheriff's Office, and the Iowa County Sheriff's Office. Van Patten and Luisma both had a first appearance in court Thursday on the murder charges. Kimpton's first appearance is scheduled for today. Sixth Judicial Associate District Judge Russell Keast set a bond for both men at $2.5 million, but allowed them to be surety bonds where a defendant can pay $250,000 through a bond company to be released from jail pending trial. Luisma and Van Patten are accused of kidnapping and killing Hoffman while they were both out on bail for assault charges filed last month. They were charged with willful injury resulting in bodily injury after police say they punched, kicked, and kneed a man at a Cedar Rapids apartment while he was on the ground and screaming for them to stop. They caused bruising and swelling to the man's face and a cut on his lower back. Luisma was released from jail on a $5,000 bail, and Van Patten was released on a $10,000 bail in that case. The University of Iowa eyes a second new parking ramp near the Carver Arena. As the University of Iowa reshapes its West Campus to accommodate a massive new $1 billion inpatient tower, a $249 million health servant sciences academic building, and other renovation and expansion projects across its health care and athletic operations, administrators are eyeing not one, but now two new parking ramps. The Board of Regents next week will consider a U of I request to spend up to $60 million on a 1,000 to 1,200 stall parking ramp in the lot across the street from Carver Hawkeye Arena, west of the College of Dentistry. 
that ramp would join the $75 million five-level 985-stall Hawkeye ramp the university is building just north of Kinnick Stadium. With the addition of the new Health Sciences Academic Building and the new UIHC inpatient bed tower alone, there is a need for 500 to 700 stalls on the west side of campus to meet current demand and anticipated growth, according to the university's request for Regent approval. The project would help alleviate parking pressure that exists on the west campus. Given ongoing and upcoming construction on the west side is eliminating some parking, including the UI hospitals and clinics parking ramp number one to make way for the new inpatient tower, the net parking gain from the two ramps would be less than the total stalls being constructed. If approved, the new parking ramp between Carver and the Dental College would add a net 800 parking stalls. The net gain from the new Hawkeye ramp currently under construction by Kinnick is 100 stalls, according to board documents. The parking plan for the UI's west side would be to designate UIHC parking ramps 2, 3, and 4 for patients only and move parking for athletic events dentistry services, and the Veterans Affairs Hospital to the north of nearby Newton Road. That would create space for UIHC growth near its future 842,000 gross square foot inpatient tower planned for property currently occupied by Hospital Parking Ramp 1, the Water Tower, and the Wendell Johnson Speech and Hearing Center. Additional space is also needed for the new Geshki Family Wrestling Training Center, according to the Regents' request, referencing a new $31.6 million, 38,500 square foot wrestling practice and operations facility connected via underground tunnel to Carver Hawkeye Arena. To pay for the new dental ramp, the university would tap its parking improvement and replacement fund and potentially collaborate with the Iowa City VA Medical Center, which is interested in leasing space from this ramp, which would significantly help fund the project. The university has said it, it plans to cover the cost of the Hawkeye ramp with debt. The Green State Credit Union loses $73 million in the last quarter of 2023, officials say. Iowa's largest credit union lost $73 million in the last quarter of 2023 due to loan defaults and a fast rise in interest rates, officials said. Green State Credit Union, based in North Liberty, has more than 447,000 members with 332 office locations and assets of more than $11 billion. The credit union lost about $78 million in all of 2023, with the bulk falling in the final quarter. Loan loss provisions rose by $60.4 million, and net interest fell by $19.4 million, as first reported by the Credit Union Times. 
Green State spokesman Jim Kelly confirmed the losses, but said Green State remains well capitalized and one of the largest credit unions in the nation with more than $1 billion in cash reserves. Green State was among four top U.S. credit unions to lose a combined $122 million in the last three months of 2023, as there were fewer loan originations and rising costs, the Credit Union Times reported. The news outlet found the losses by checking the nation's 10 largest credit unions and others that reported layoffs. The fast rise in interest rates has slowed home sales, which means fewer loans. At the same time, banks and credit unions are affected by higher interest rates because the cost of deposits goes up. Green State eliminated 75 positions in 2022, with 42 of those part of a layoff in September 2022. Other employees were laid off in smaller numbers or empty positions were eliminated, Kelly said. Green State Chief Executive Officer Jeff Disterhoft suddenly retired last fall, but Kelly says it's not related to the credit union's losses. When the Gazette asked whether the Board of Directors had asked Disterhoft to step down, Kelly said Jeff and the Board came to the decision together. Several others on Green State's executive team left after his retirement, Kelly said. Earlier this month, the credit union named a new CEO, Vikram Israni, who previously was chief financial officer at Wings Credit Union in Apple Valley, Minnesota. Israni has been an MBA from the American Graduate School of International Management and has worked more than 25 years in the financial services industry. And going to Des Moines in the Capital Notebook, Happy Caitlin Clark Day to all who celebrate. State legislators in the Iowa House on Thursday approved a resolution declaring February 22, 2024 as Caitlin Clark Day to honor the University of Iowa women's basketball player who recently became the all-time leading scorer in NCAA women's basketball history. Clark wears number 22 on her Hawkeyes jersey. Eight legislators in the House, a mixture of Republicans and Democrats, took turns reading the resolution on the Iowa House floor. House Resolution 110 was approved unanimously by a voice vote. The resolution praises Clark, a West Des Moines native and Dowling Catholic High School alumna, as one of the greatest collegiate athletes of all time and a prime example of the pinnacle of Iowa sportsmanship and athleticism. In a bipartisan ethics committee dismissed a complaint against Iowa Representative Jeff Shipley, a rep Republican from Birmingham. It's brought by an activist and nonprofit president who said he defamed her on social media. The ethics complaint was brought by Sarah Hayden Paris, the president of Annie's Foundation. The group advocates against 
book bans and has the mission of ensuring members of our community have unhindered access to books that reflect the diversity and complexity of the world around them, according to Paris's complaint. Paris's complaint describes an exchange between Shipley and herself posting under the Annie's Foundation account on X, formerly Twitter, surrounding access to books in school libraries. In the exchange, Shipley highlighted a post from Paris's personal Facebook account and said she was peddling materials of lascivious nature and needed to be criminally investigated pointing to a section of Iowa code dealing with disseminating obscene material to minors. Paris claimed the statement constituted libel, per se, and a violation of the House Code of Ethics. The committee discussed the complaint and unanimously dis the committee dismissed the complaint unanimously without discussion. An Iowa Senate Committee on Tax Policy advanced Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal to further reduce state income taxes. In doing so, the proposal will be analyzed by the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency, which will project how much Iowa taxpayers would save and how much state revenue would be reduced under the bill. Currently, state income tax brackets are being gradually reduced and rates lowered through 2026 when most Iowa taxpayers will pay a 3.9 percent state income tax rate in 2026. Under Reynolds' plan, State Senate Study Bill 3038 state income tax brackets would be eliminated and most taxpayers would pay a state income tax rate of 3.65 percent for 2024. That rate would lower to 3.5 percent in 2025. Legislative Republicans have introduced their own plan, which includes the eventual and complete elimination of the state income tax. In previous years, the state income tax accounted for nearly half of state general fund revenue. The Iowa Senate Ways and Means Committee passed Reynolds' income tax plan 10 to 6, with Republicans supporting and Democrats opposed. It is now eligible for consideration by the full Senate. The Iowa House okays 3% school funding increase. Iowa's funding for K-12 schools would increase by $147 million under a bill Iowa Republicans passed out of the House on Thursday. The bill, House File 2613, sets the growth rate for supplemental state aid, the money the state pays to school districts, at 3% for the 2024-25 school year. The increase would amount to a $229 increase per student, bringing the state's per-pupil spending to $7,864. The increase would bring the total K-12 spending from the state's general fund to around $3.8 billion. The bill was passed by majority Republicans, largely along party lines, 60 to 36. 
Republican Representative Brian Losey of Bondurant joined Democrats in voting against the bill. Republicans said the bill's plan is sustainable and would provide budget stability for schools. Democrats decried the bill as a de facto cut to school funding and said it would cause cuts to staff, programs, and services. Iowa Senate lawmakers have not settled on a number to boost school funding. Senate Republicans have advanced a shell bill that in does not include a funding increase. Since Republicans gained full control of the legislature in 2017, they've increased school funding by an average of 2% each year, according to Legislative Services Agency. The legislature passed a 3% increase in school funding last year. Governor Kim Reynolds proposed a 2.5% increase in her budget. House Republicans also have proposed a bill that would increase starting pay for teachers to $50,000 over two years and boost pay for paraeducators and other school support staff. House Democrats called the 3% increase to school funding insufficient to keep up with rising costs. Representative Sharon Steckman, a Democrat from Mason City, proposed an amendment to increase the state's public school funding by 6%, or around $294 million. Democrats said the higher increase would allow schools to keep up with rising wages, increasing costs, and help them fund vital programs such as work-based learning. With a 3% increase, they warned schools would not be able to rehire teachers and would have fewer offerings with larger class sizes. Democrats compared the funding increase to the amount the state will spend this year on private school savings accounts, which Republican lawmakers approved last year. The program allows families to take the state's full per-pupil allocation for their students and spend it on private school tuition. Around 16,750 students used an education savings account for the current school year for an estimated cost of $127.3 million. By year four, when every family will be eligible regardless of income, the program is expected to cost $345 million annually, according to estimates from the Legislative Services Agency. Private school enrollment increased 7.4% during this school year to 36,195. Public school enrollment dropped by a half percent to, to 483,693. The Republicans noted on Thursday they are pushing for a separate bill that would increase the starting teacher salary to $50,000 over two years and increase pay for paraprofessionals. House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said the bill was part of a global package on school funding. We wanted to make sure that we give schools flexibility with state supplemental aid, at the same time recognizing we need to put more money to paraeducation and teacher pay, Grassley noted. 
responding to accusations that Republicans were prioritizing private school students, Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Boone, said private school and public school students receive the same level of funding. He noted, we have consistently delivered steady increases and SSA to the tune of nearly a billion dollars in the last decade. This is my sixth year here. This is the sixth time that I got to vote for a sustainable increase in SSA, something I'm proud of. The EPA approves a year-round sales of higher ethanol blend in eight states. Drivers in eight Midwestern states, including Iowa, will be able to fuel up with a higher blend of ethanol throughout the year under a final rule announced Thursday by the Environmental Protection Agency. The biofuels industry and farming groups, with support of Midwest governors, sought the end of a summertime ban on sales of gasoline blended with 15% ethanol for years. The higher blend has been prohibited because of concerns it could worsen smog during warm weather. The move reflects the importance of ethanol to agriculture. The fuel additive consumes roughly 40% of the nation's corn crop, so higher sales of ethanol could mean greater profits for corn farmers. The rule, which takes effect in April 2025, will apply in Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Those states grow the bulk of the U.S. corn crop and are home to much of the nation's ethanol production. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on Thursday welcomed the EPA decision noting she organized a bipartisan coalition of eight Midwest governors to allow E15 sales during summer months. The EPA said it delayed implementation of the new rule because of concerns there wasn't enough supply to meet demand this summer. Ethanol producers welcomed the change but criticized the EPA for the delay most gasoline sold across the country is blended with 10% ethanol, though 15% blends are becoming increasingly common, especially in the Midwest. E15 summer sales still will not be allowed in most of the country during the summer, though agricultural groups are pushing for a nationwide policy change. The biofuels industry and politicians of both parties have portrayed ethanol as a product that helps farmers, reduces prices at the pump, and lessens greenhouse gas releases because the fuel burns more cleanly than straight gasoline. However, environmentalists and others have said increased ethanol production can increase carbon releases because it results in more corn production leading to increased use of fertilizer and greater releases of nitrate. Synthetic and natural fertilizers also are a leading source of water pollution. The EPA has approved sales of E15 for cars and trucks manufactured after 2000. Grow Energy, another bioenergy trade association, estimates the higher blend will cost consumers 15 cents a gallon less than 10% ethanol. 
petroleum refiners have opposed the Midwest-specific rules, saying a special blend in one region would increase costs and could lead to tighter fuel supplies. The American Petroleum Institute, a trade group, said a national standard is needed. Researchers advocate for a drought information system that would require about $500,000 up front. As Iowa progresses into its fourth year of drought, researchers are advocating for an Iowa drought information system that would better inform water utilities, industries, jurisdictions, and the public about local water conditions but the project lacks funding. The idea for the system spawned from the Iowa Drought Plan published in early 2023. The plan designated a drought coordinating team to set drought statuses from normal to emergency for different regions of the state. Local, county, and state agencies and governments can use those designations to better prepare communities for drought impacts. There's a wealth of drought-related data available, ranging from stream flows to soil moisture measurements to groundwater levels. However, that data currently is scattered across different databases and websites. That makes it difficult for Iowans to fully understand the local conditions and make the most informed decisions, said Tim Hall, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources Hydrology Resources Coordinator. That's where the Iowa Drought Information System would come into play. The free website would be a one-stop shop for Iowans looking to learn more about local drought conditions and impacts. Much like the existing Iowa Flood Information System, which was developed by the University of Iowa-based Iowa Flood Center in 2011, the site would source a variety of data and present it to users via accessible maps and messaging. It may be housed under the UI's Center for Hydrologic Development. The system would draw from the existing data sources and monitoring infrastructure. For example, the UI's expanding network of hydro stations already provides information about soil moisture, soil temperature, and groundwater levels. Satellites keep track of vegetation growth and evapotranspiration, or the amount of water evaporating from soil and plants. U.S. geological survey stations measure stream flow at about 150 sites across the state. The centralized database could help groups such as water utilities create educational materials about drought impacts and potential steps customers could take. Utilities around the state have struggled with low water quantities as the drought stretches on. The Avoca treatment plant system in western Iowa, for example, recently reinstated water restrictions after voluntary measures failed to reduce usage. Last fall, Belle Plaine in Benton County suffered from murky water as the drought depleted well water reserves. In southern Iowa, Osceola considered becoming the first jurisdiction in the state to use treated wastewater to recharge its water supply. The Iowa Drought Information System also stands to benefit the state's agricultural sector, which has been battling drought for the last years. By better identifying condition, drought conditions and effects, producers could recoup more money for related losses, said state geologist Keith Schilling. 
The team has pitched the project to Iowa legislators, government agencies, and private entities. Still, no group has offered funding. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 23, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Earl Leroy Christensen, 94, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Tuesday, February 20th at Keystone Nursing Care Center in Keystone. He was born April 23, 1929, in Rockwell, Iowa. He attended Roosevelt High School and was the owner of Christensen's Construction. Earl loved sprint car racing, nature, and was an avid coin collector. Per Earl's wishes, there will be no services. Interment will take place at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Mary Irene Weber was born July 21, 1942, on her mother's 25th birthday in Cedar Rapids. She was the daughter of Dorothy Ludlow and Fred Weber. Mary grew up in Marion, graduating from Marion High School in 1960. She married Dick Todd in 1961, went on to marry Fritz Dyers in 1972. She worked in child care in many different capacities over the years. She also served as a foster parent for many children. She loved sewing, home renovations, dancing, and country music. Mary passed away peacefully on January 31, 2024. A memorial service will be held at First Presbyterian Church in Marion on Monday, March 4th. Visitation will be at 10 a.m., service at 11 a.m., and lunch following. Gifts in memorial may be sent to the church. Lynn Ann Dornfeld, age 56, of Iowa City, died at her home surrounded by her family Monday, February 19th. Private family graveside services are being planned for interment to take place at Oakland Cemetery in Iowa City, with a public celebration of Lynn's life to be announced later this spring. Madeline Jean Tropgosh, 95, passed away peacefully surrounded by her loving family. She was born to Basil and Sybil Whitaker and had seven siblings, but grew up with and was eventually adopted by her aunt and uncle Alta and Oscar Menser after Madeline's mother died. She was a secretary and did administrative work in her early years. She also taught water aerobics and ruled with her trusted whistle at Bender Pool in Cedar Rapids until she was at 83. Madeline was involved in many social groups and loved to play Farkle with her friends. A Catholic funeral mass will be celebrated on Friday, May 17th at 10.30 a.m. at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Mount Vernon. Following the service, there will be a lunch and a celebration of Madeline's life at the church. Afterward, her ashes will be laid to rest at the Catholic Cemetery in Lisbon. Larry W. Bengi Sr. of Cedar Rapids died Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. 
A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, February 26th at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. A funeral service will take take place at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, February 27th at Hope Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids. Burial will follow at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Larry was born December 29, 1933 in Flores, Iowa. He graduated from Bloomfield High School. He was united in marriage to Carolyn Compton on March 10, 1954, in Flores. The couple lived in Mechanicsville and Stanwood for many years before settling in Cedar Rapids. Larry and Carolyn were active members of Hope Lutheran Church. He worked at Cherry Burrell Corporation for 35 years. He loved woodworking, train sets, antique cars, especially his 1940 Ford, and reading Western paperbacks. Larry enjoyed taking day trips with Mary and Michael. Memorials may be directed to the family for a memorial fund that has been established. Douglas Robert Wade, 74, of Ryan, passed away on Wednesday, February 21st at Regional Medical Center in Manchester, Iowa. Visitation will be held from 2 to 6 p.m. on Sunday, February 25th at Bonin Camp Murdoch Funeral Home in Manchester. Funeral service will be held 11 a.m. Monday, February 26th with an additional visitation one hour prior to the service at Silver Creek Church, Rural Masonville with the Reverend Phil Rogers officiating. Burial will take place at Silver Creek Cemetery. Bonin Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Manchester is in charge of arrangements. Douglas was born on September 7, 1949 in Manchester. He was a graduate of Manchester High School in 1967. After graduation, Douglas worked at Collins Radio in Cedar Rapids, the Creamery in Ryan, and the City of Ryan before working more than 30 years as a rural mail carrier for the USPS. Douglas grew up in the Ryan Methodist Church. After it closed, he attended the Silver Creek Church. He enjoyed collecting model cars and driving his classic cars to car shows around the area. Memorials in Douglas's memory may be directed to the Silver Creek Chapel and Cemetery in Ryan. John Allen Tomey, 47, of Iowa City, passed away Sunday, February 18th. John was born August 9, 1976, in Iowa City. He went backpack through Europe, skydiving in New Zealand, and made questionable yet incredible memories. John graduated from Kirkwood Community College with an associate degree before starting his career in construction. He worked with his dad, worked on his own, and even spent time out east with Beezer Homes before becoming construction project manager at the University of Iowa. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23rd at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Iowa City with a rosary recited at 3.30 p.m. A Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 24th at the church. 
private interment will be held at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the John Tome Memorial Fund, which will be used for his children. Charles, known as Chuck White, age 95, of Kyoto, died Wednesday, February 21st, at the Kyoto Health Care Center. Chuck was born April 7, 1928, in Los Angeles, California. He moved to Kyoto with his family in 1941 and graduated from Kyoto High School. Chuck served in the U.S. Marine Corps from October 10, 1946 until September 26, 1948. On November 18, 1950, he married Patricia Stregel at St. Mary Catholic Church in Kyoto. Chuck managed the Kyoto Lumber Company and did rural delivery of the Des Moines Sunday Register from 1955 until 1980. He was also a self-employed carpenter for many years, retiring in 2014. Chuck was a member of Holy Trinity Parish, the Kyoto Community Club, the Kyoto Volunteer Fire Department for 42 years, and was a former member of the Kyoto JCs. Funeral Mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, February 26th at Holy Trinity Parish, St. Mary Catholic Church in Kyoto with Rev. Robert Lathrop officiating. Burial will be at Holy Trinity Cemeteries, St. Mary Cemetery in Kyoto with military rites by the Kyoto VFW Post 4716. Visitation will be from 9 a.m. until 10.30 a.m. on Monday at the church. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established for the Kyoto Volunteer Fire Department or the Kyoto Flag Project. Carol Ann Walter was born July 13, 1952 in Cedar Rapids. She graduated from Kennedy High School, then earned a college degree from Kirkwood Community College. Carol was in, united in marriage to Kevin Walter on June 19, 1971 at Trinity Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids. They lived in Cedar Rapids for 12 years before moving to Oxford. Carol worked for the Amana Refrigeration Accounting Department until 1999. She also worked for Clayton Marcus Furniture and the University of Iowa Community Medical Service. She enjoyed bowling, cooking, and for many years she decorated cakes for all types of events. Carol passed away Tuesday, February 20th at Colonial Manor Nursing Home in Amana at the age of 71 years. A celebration of life services will be 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 24th at Emanuel Lutheran Church in rural Williamsburg. Burial will be at the Emanuel Lutheran Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23rd at Powell Funeral Home in Williamsburg. A memorial fund has been established for Lutheran Interparish School. Powell Funeral Home in Williamsburg is caring for Carol and her family. And moving on to sports in girls' regional basketball. The Lynx make it six straight. Delayed gratification is gratification nonetheless. Trailing after a quarter, top-ranked North Lynn 
jolted Edgewood Colesburg with a 24-2 surge in the final six minutes of the second period, and the Lynx advanced to their sixth consecutive girls' state basketball tournament, 66-34, in a Class 1A regional final Wednesday night at Seardorf Gymnasium. The Lynx collected 20 steals, forced Edco into 34 turnovers, and handled the Vikings for the third time this season. They'll face number 9 Montezuma in a 1A quarterfinal at the state tournament at 1.30 p.m. Wednesday at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. North Lynn absorbed a solid punch from the Vikings early. They trailed 9-4 after five minutes and still faced an 11-9 deficit after a quarter. They came back, and they came back with a flurry. And they, uh, in another game, Cascade 50, Regina 47. For Mike Sconza, it was all about his team. For the Cascade players and fans, it was just as much about their coach, Mike Sconza, as about the team. After twice having to step away from the program for health reasons over the past four seasons, Sconza will be taking another team to the state tournament. The Cougars built a 14-point lead in the third quarter, only to see Iowa City Regina take the lead with just over two minutes to play. Baskets from reserves Josie Monternach and Brooklyn Trum proved to be the difference as Cascade took down the Regals 50-47 in a Class A regional final at the Cedar Rapids Kennedy High School Gym. We aren't the prettiest thing to look at. It's a motto I go back to the, all the time that you do not have to be perfect to be successful. The 11th ranked Cougars will meet top ranked Dyke New Hartford in a state quarterfinal game at 6.45 p.m. Tuesday at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Number 6 Regina closes at 19.5. After suffering a stroke in 2020 and undergoing a kidney transplant before the end of last season, Skanza had his team in position for another trip to state. In high school bowling, Vinton Shellsburg coaches Amber Patty and Kurt Kirchner found themselves pacing up and down Cadillac XBC in Waterloo on Wednesday. Every step was worth it. Viking bowlers Van Lessig and Kylie Kirchner, separated by 18 lanes in their championship matches, secured Class 1A individual state titles within moments of each other. Kurt and I just kept going back and forth, trying to coach both of them. So it got a little crazy, Patty said. I had to watch Van, and then I'd kind of peek down at Kylie, and then I'd come back to Van, and I'd go down to Kylie. <laughs> they unfortunately were so far apart, it was hard to watch both. He made a statement. Er, uh, Lessig entered bracket play as the number eight seed, making the cut by just nine points. He made a statement early, defeating top-seeded Ryan Edwards from DeWitt Central, 244 to 194. In the semifinals, Lessig had another strong showing, topping St. Albert's Cole Peckney, 223 to 207. Lessig saved his best round of the day for last. 
He outscored Noah White from Charles City 262-212 to in the championship match. Shortly after Lessig secured his title, an uproar came from the other side of Cadillac XBC. Kirchner was having her winning moment. Kirchner came in as the seventh seed and opened bracket play with a tight win over second seeded Olivia Gardner from St. Albert, 184 to 182. Next up was Clorinda's Riley Pulliam. Both bowlers had exceptional semifinal rounds with Kirchner's a touch better, winning 244-235. Kirchner squared off against Louisa Muscatine's Molly Bramble in the championship match. It was tightly contested throughout, but Kirchner again rose to the occasion to win 219-204. When Lessig Kirchner, coaches, and teammates departed from Waterloo. They had no idea what they'd be returning home to. Seven miles from Vinton, a brigade, a brigade of firefighters was waiting to escort them into town. Sirens, lights, it was just amazing, said Patty. Continuing in bowling, City High Senior finishes as the runner-up in Class 3A. Des Moines Kendra Schwerting could have been intimidated. No one would have blamed her. Des Moines Lincoln's Vicki Andrews, her opponent in Tuesday's opening round of bracket play at the Class 3A State Bowling Tournament in Waterloo, was fresh off setting a state tournament record for a three-game series in pre-bracket qualifying. Andrews also had the highest per-game average in Iowa high school girls' bowling this season. Oh, and she was the defending 3A state champion. None of that phased Schwarting. In fact, the challenge brought out the best in the City High Senior. Under the bright lights, Schwarting shined. She flirted with perfection, throwing her second highest game of the season, a 289, besting Andrews 266. Schwarting had tossed a 300 game at May City Bowl on December 1st, the only girl in Iowa high school bowling to do so this season. In the semifinals, Schwarting faced a Tumwas Olivia Muller. Schwarting again put together 10 stellar frames, outscoring Muller 245 to 190. The championship match against Des Moines East's Riley Schillinger didn't go quite as smoothly for Schwarting. We were pretty neck and neck for the first few rounds, Schwarting said. I think it was the fourth or fifth frame I threw my first shot and got a nine. Then I was throwing my spare. I fouled. It kind of threw me off a little bit. Schillinger took home the 3A state title with a 208-186 win. Schwarting's high school career Bowling bowling career ends with a state runner-up multiple, all-conference, all-district, and all-state selections. She was also named Athlete of the Year for Girls Bowling in the Mississippi Valley Conference this season. And in some other news, the largest sycamore tree in the state was likely destroyed by a suspicious fire. The Iowa DNR is seeking some information about fire in Geode State Park near Danville. 
a sycamore tree that sprouted around the same time French explorers Louis Joliet and Jacques Marquette saw Iowa for the first time in the 1670s likely was destroyed by fire this week. A visitor to Geode State Park near Danville alerted staff Sunday the sycamore was on fire. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources reported while the fire was extinguished, the tree was severely damaged and its survival is uncertain, the DNR said in a news release. The tree, with a trunk circumference of 23 feet and a height of 107 feet, that was in 2018, was certified the largest of its kind in Iowa. While the tree's exact age is unknown, it is estimated to be 350 years old based on its size. We are encouraging anyone who may have information about the fire to contact us, Geode Park Ranger Andrew Kukler said in a news release. Callers can remain anonymous. They can reach Kukler at 319-392-4601. Kukler could not immediately be reached to provide more information about the timing of the fire or how it was put out. Iowa's database of state champion trees is maintained by Mark Rao, a volunteer who travels the state measuring trees' height, trunk circumference at chest height, and canopy spread. The DNR stated the Iowa Big Tree Program in 1978, inspired by the National Big Tree Program, launched in 1940 by the American Forestry Association, a nonprofit conservation group now called American Forests. Geode State Park, about 90 miles southeast of Cedar Rapids, also was the site of illegal ginseng harvesting in 2018 and 2019. And some British divers find a bell from a U.S. destroyer sunk by a U-boat. The crew of the USS Jacob Jones spotted the German torpedo coming at them from 1,000 yards away. The American destroyer was steaming alone in the Atlantic, 25 miles from Bishop Rock off the southwest coast of Britain, unaware it was being stalked by a U-boat, an enemy submarine. Someone yelled, Torpedo! The ship tried to veer out of the way, but the torpedo struck home, blew up, and the Jacob Jones sank in eight minutes, taking 64 sailors down with it. It was 4.21 p.m., December 6, 1917, eight months after the U.S. entered the World War I. The Jacob Jones became the first U.S. destroyer to be lost to enemy action, the Navy says. Last month, at the behest of the Naval History and Heritage Command in Washington, a British government diving unit retrieved the ship's bell from the wreck almost 400 feet below the water's surface, where it had rested for more than a century. Plans are to return the bell to the command at the Washington Navy Yard as soon as this spring. It will go to the command's underwater archaeology lab for conservation. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 23, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, 
iowaradioreading.org anytime. Thanks for listening.